Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. Back in February, we talked about courage and how David had to have courage in order to fight Goliath. And to start the sermon, I actually asked everyone to share with their neighbor what their biggest fear was. And after church that day, a bunch of people came up to me to ask what my biggest fear was because I didn't actually share it in the sermon. And so my biggest fear is the ocean, and I know exactly when my fear started. Every summer growing up, my family would go to the beach. I honestly don't think that we ever miss the summer. Once baseball season was over, we'd pack up the car, we'd drive to Virginia Beach or the Outer Banks, we'd spend seven days in the sand. We are those people that got to the beach early and left their chairs up and stayed all day and didn't leave. One of the best parts of going to the beach was going into the ocean with my dad. My dad is 6'5", so as a little kid, he could take us deeper in the ocean than we could ever go by ourselves. When I was seven years old, I remember my mom and my dad taking me and my sister out into the ocean. We had a small blow-up raft that we're holding onto as my dad pushed us further and further away from shore. To this day, I still swear the water was 20 feet deep. My dad would roll his eyes and tell me that it was shallow enough for him to touch the ground. One of us is exaggerating. It's him. Either way, we were far enough that we couldn't see the shore and sharks were swimming all around us. Okay, that might not be true, but that's what it felt like as a seven-year-old kid to be so far out there. And so because of that fear, I started to panic. Every wave that started to build, I would start shouting, it's going to get us, it's going to get us. My dad would reassure me that we were too far out, and sure enough, we'd go right over the wave. But then another wave would start to build, it's going to get us, it's going to get us. And we would gently float over the top. And we probably did this for about 30 minutes until it happened. A huge wave started to build and move toward us. I started to freak out. It's going to get us. It's going to get us. But this time, I was right. My dad grabbed my sister, and my mom went to grab me, but it was too late, or the wave was too strong. And I remember tumbling on the bottom of the ocean floor, opening my eyes, but only seeing that dark, murky water, tasting salt water as I tried my best to hold my breath. I was probably too young to think I was going to die, but there were moments where I was wondering, am I going to make it out of this alive? Eventually, I got to the shore, and my mom and my dad came running toward me to make sure I was okay. My mom picked me up. I was crying. There's that, like, seawater snot stuff coming out of your face. You guys know what that is. And I remember looking my dad dead in the eyes, and I said, I told you it was going to get us. To this day, I still have a somewhat irrational fear of the ocean. Actually, I hate any body of water where you can't see the bottom. I want to know how deep it is. I want to know what's swimming around my legs. I want to know that I am safe. Now, I still go to the beach and I'll go into the ocean, but it actually takes me a while to work up the nerve. And the whole time I'm in there, I'm on pins and needles, right? Like anytime something grazes against you, you're like, I'm done. You're just like running back in. And so I'll still go, but it still terrifies me. Today, we're in week two of our Crash the Chatterbox series. And this whole series is about the fact that we have a voice inside of our head. We have a chatterbox that's constantly running its mouth. It's relentless. And it's a voice of insecurity and fear and condemnation. And what we believe as Christians is that that voice comes from Satan. Jesus actually calls Satan the father of lies. And so one strategy that Satan uses is that he puts question marks where God puts periods in an attempt for us to question and manipulate and twist what God says. 
what God says about his purpose, what God says about his truth, and more importantly, he tries to twist what God says about us. And this leaves us with this insecurity and fear and discouragement and so much more. At the same time, Jesus promises that those who follow him will have another voice called the advocate who will speak truth into our lives. And so we have a choice. Will you listen to the adversary or the advocate? And here's why that question matters. Because the voice you believe will determine the future that you experience. So when the chatterbox starts going, will you listen to the adversary whose goal is to kill, steal, and destroy? Or will you listen to the voice of God who sent his son to seek and save you so that you might have a life filled with grace, hope, love, and so much more? Second topic in this series is fear. Only we're not going to be talking about phobias. We're actually going to be going deeper than that. We're going to be talking about a two-word question that the chatterbox loves to ask. In the book, Crash the Chatterbox by Stephen Furtick, he writes that fear comes to us disguised as a two-word question. And those two words are what if. What if. I want to try something new, but I think, what if this doesn't work and I end up looking like a failure? I contemplate being vulnerable with my friends, but I think, what if they judge me and laugh at me and use my vulnerabilities against me? I need to correct somebody I lead because they messed up something, but I think, what if they point out the ways that I fall short and then they quit? Or there's a new discipline that I want to start, going to the gym or living off a budget or reading my Bible more. But I think, what if I fail like last time? Then everyone will think that I struggle with discipline or they'll think that I'm lazy or unwise or not investing in my relationship with God. Then I know for me, at least, I go into this vicious cycle, and most of you do as well. You start thinking, what if I don't get off for the job? What if I do? What if the alarm doesn't go off? What if it goes off, but I don't hear it? What if I forgot something? What if I remember, but it's the wrong thing? What if I marry her and she's not the one? What if I marry her, but after a few years I realize marriage wasn't for me? What if I don't like the church? What if I do and I realize that Jesus can give me a better life? Do I really want to change? And these what ifs, what these what ifs do is they create a black hole that consumes our peace of mind and it reveals our fears. What if is a destructive question that's based on the fears that we have. And that fear leads to inaction. It becomes crippling. And so how do we overcome that fear? How do we not let the what-ifs paralyze us into inaction? Now, hear me clearly. Our goal today is not to get rid of all fear. Healthy fear can be a good thing. It helps us survive. So I'm not saying the goal is to be fearless, right? Because none of us would accomplish that anyways. The goal is to silence the what-ifs that the chatterbox uses to force us into inaction. One strange fact about me is that I'm weirdly obsessed with brand loyalty, and so if there's a brand of clothing that I like, if it fits well, if it lasts a long time, I'm sold out and I'll pretty much only purchase that type of clothing for a pretty long time. Right now it's Under Armour all through high school and college. It was only Nike. But when I was a kid, I was actually fiercely loyal to a t-shirt brand called No Fear. Any of you remember these? Some of the guys do. You don't want to raise your hand. Yeah, it's good. These are like the dumbest shirts that ever existed, but I wore them all the time. I had like 30 of them. They had phrases like, there are lessons to be learned from competition, but fear isn't one of them. No fear. They always had like these weird eyes on the back too. They're super strange. They say, losing is very bad, so I'll let you do it. No fear. If you can't win, don't play. No fear. At this point, you guys are starting to think I was really cool in high school. I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> but these, I mean, while these shirts are incredibly lame, the idea of having no fear doesn't make sense because fear can be a good thing. My three-year-old isn't afraid of traffic. If, <laughs> that's not good. If we don't hold her hand in a parking lot or while crossing the street, she will run in front of a car because she's just not afraid. 
She just doesn't know that she should have some healthy fear when it comes to being around a moving car. We're working on it, but it takes time. Our hope is to teach her to have this healthy fear of traffic and cars so that she can be safe. And so fear can be a good thing. But the question is, how do we overcome the irrational fears and the crippling fears that prevent us from doing the things we need to do to experience the life that God created for us? And the thing is, we have these what ifs and the chatterbox keeps going. And so how do we stop that from causing inaction in our lives? I was doing research for the sermon. I thought this would be a really easy topic to talk about because there's a bunch of people in the Bible. And we'll just read and see how they responded to fear. But actually, check this out. Adam hid from God because he was afraid to see him after he sinned. Sarah was afraid when she got caught laughing at God. Isaac was afraid to admit that Rebekah was his wife, so he lied. Jacob was afraid that Esau would kill him. Moses was afraid that no one would listen to him because he had a stutter. The Israelites were afraid to come near Mount Sinai because it was covered in fire. The city of Jericho was afraid of Israel. Saul was afraid of the people and offered a sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to. And Saul was also afraid of David because the people loved David more than him. Elijah was afraid of the wicked queen Jezebel and fled for his life. Israel was afraid of what the Babylonians would do when they were conquered. King David was afraid of God, so he didn't bring the ark back home like he should have. And the list keeps going and going and going, person after person. There aren't many great examples, and that's good news because the Bible is full of real people just like us. They respond to fear the same way that we do. Oftentimes, they and us, we're overcome by fear, and it leads us to inaction or sin. While there are definitely good examples of people in the Bible responding to fear, we're going to focus on one overlooked story in the book of Ezra. We're going to start in Ezra 3. Check this out in Ezra 3.3. It says this, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. That first phrase, despite their fear. Even though they were afraid, they did what they were supposed to do. Even though they were afraid, they obeyed God. Even though they were afraid, they did something so significant that it's written down and handed down to us in the Bible. And here we are 2,500 years later, and we're seeking to learn from them. And so my question is, how do we become like them? Because I know I personally have what ifs. And you have what ifs that the chatterbox is constantly whispering in your ear. And so I want to be like these people who, in spite of fear, despite their fear, they did what they were supposed to do and made a difference. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this passage, which actually only ends up being a few verses, and we're going to learn three key things that help us overcome fear, as shown by the people in this story. So here's actually how this story starts. We're going to jump back a few verses in Ezra 3.1. This is what it says. When the seven months came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. So the book of Ezra in the Bible is very simply about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. It takes place in about 450 BC, and the people of Israel had been conquered by Babylon. And so what the Babylonians did is they actually took all the Jewish people out of their land and settled Jerusalem with outsiders. But now at this point in the story, at this point of the Old, Old Testament, the Jews are actually heading back to Jerusalem to try and rebuild the temple, to try and take claim of their home again. And the first key that we see to overcoming fear is that we need to find community. You see, fear isolates. Fear backs you into a corner. Fear makes you question who you can trust. You start to think, what if no one cares? What if I'm all alone? What if I have to go through this by myself? But even though the Israelites were afraid, they assembled together as one. They were together. 
Sure, they were afraid. We know that. We know they had fear. They, we know that they had no idea what they were coming back to. They knew, we know they had no idea if they were going to be successful. They had fear. But they had someone next to them showing them that they can keep going. And the reality is you need the same thing. My childhood best friend is a personal trainer, but he's not your like, typical personal trainer. Uh, he trains power lifters. And so about a year ago, I met up with him at his gym to grab lunch to talk about his recent success. He had started a company. It was just blowing up. He's going crazy. And so I'd seen online that he actually had a bunch of his own lifters at Nationals in Columbus, Ohio. And every picture I saw that his wife was posting, there'd be 20 to 25 people wearing his company's T-shirt in these pictures. They were even all over the website. And so I asked him, how do you get 20 people to qualify for Nationals as powerlifters? When I asked him that question, he started to look confused. And so I brought up one of the pictures and I showed him, and it's one guy lifting, there's 20 people surrounding them. When we saw that picture, he actually he chuckled, and he said that he actually only had three or four guys and girls qualify on the national level. But when they go to compete, they actually bring the whole group with them. He said he does that to show the less successful lifters what their goals are. He said the main benefit is for the lifters competing. Explain that he's learned that in powerlifting, that these, his powerlifters are more successful when they have 20 people screaming at them that they can keep going. Because those people know the pain of trying to set a PR. They know what it's like to put in the work and to compete. They know what it's like to want to quit but keep pushing. And it helps the lifters know that they are not alone. That they have people standing behind them that are yelling, that understand the pain that they're feeling, that understand the frustration that they're feeling, and they're there to cheer them on. When you have other people with you with the same purpose, it's easier to keep going. That's why you need to find community. And to be honest, not just any community, you need to actually find Christian community because the adversary is whispering what ifs in your ear. And if you don't have physical advocates cheering you on, it will be easier to give in to those fears. If you don't have people in your life right now that will fight with you and push you and champion you, you will give in to those what ifs. You will give in to your fear. Listen, I understand that some of you here have Christian community outside of collective, and that's great. But if you don't have that, you need to have it, and you need to join one of our collectives. They're kicking back up in a few weeks, and they're full of people just like you. They have the same struggles, the same pain, the same fears. And the reality is you have a choice. We're not going to make you do it. You don't have to walk out and check off this box on the way out. You don't have to. It's up to you. But if you refuse to find it here, that's on you. But know what you're saying is that you don't want people to cheer you on. What you're saying is that you want to do this alone. That you don't want an advocate to speak into your life through other people. And you will eventually give in to the what ifs. The Bible talks about being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that we press on. You don't have to do this alone. There are other people who are afraid that they don't know how to do this parenting thing. There are other people who are afraid to take on their addiction. There are other people who are afraid to take steps to trust God. You are not alone. The second key to overcoming fear is just do something. Just do something. Just do something to get started. In Ezra 3, the goal is to rebuild the temple. But they know that rebuilding the temple was a massive project. It took them years. It took them a very long time. People that started the project didn't actually complete it because they died before it got there. But do you know what they did? They started a little altar. They were afraid. It was overwhelming. So they got a small win to get them started. There's a really popular book called The Power of Habit. 
And it talks about how to stop bad habits and start creating good ones. And there's a phrase that's really important to this process. The book talks repeatedly about something called keystone habits. And keystone habits are things that when you start doing them, they unintentionally spill over and positively impact other aspects of your life. One of the biggest keystone habits for all people is exercise. If you start exercising, even if it's only one day a week, researchers have found out that you will start eating better, you are more productive at work, you smoke less, you show more patience, you use your credit cards less frequently, and you are less stressed. And here's the thing, researchers can't figure out why that happens. Because they, when they set out to study this, they, studied, they went out to study people who exercise, not all the other aspects that spilled over into this keystone habit. Here are a few more. Families that habitually eat dinner together seem to raise children with better homework skills, higher grades, greater emotional control, and more confidence. And one more, you've probably seen this. There's a, a Navy general who talked about this. It was all over social media for the last few years. Making your bed every morning is correlated with higher productivity, a greater sense of well-being, and stronger skills of sticking with a budget. This is why at AA, if you go to one of their meetings, they don't tell you that you have to immediately stop drinking for the rest of your life. They say, go without drinking for one day, and then we'll move on from there. What they're saying is do something to get started. Start with one day. Jesus tells a story about this called the parable of the talents. And Jesus says that there's a master who has three servants. And the master is going out of town, so he brings his servants together and gives them some money, telling them to take care of it while he's gone. When the master returns, he calls the servants back together to give an account. And so the first guy comes up and says that he's doubled his money. And the master says, great job, here's your reward. The second guy also doubled his money, and so the master says, you did a great job as well. And then the third guy tells the master that he was too afraid to do anything, so he buried it. Fear took over. He thought, what if I waste the money and don't get a good return? What if the master then punishes me for my failure? What if holding on to the money, I somehow lose it or get robbed? So he buries it. And in this parable, Jesus says the master actually rebukes him, tells him, you're a lazy servant, and tells him to get out of here. And so one of the things that Jesus teaches through this parable is don't do nothing, do something. When you have fear, do something to get started. If you're afraid of getting control of all of your money, just start by keeping track of your spending. If you're afraid of being vulnerable at a small group, start by showing up. If you're afraid of giving up your addiction, start by going one day without whatever is taking control of your life right now. A few years ago, the Gallup organization put out a story about one of the companies they had recently helped. And the story was about a sales company that was experiencing high turnover, and the turnover was actually causing them to lose a ton of money. And so they called Gallup, and they asked them to help figure out, how do we hire the right people so we can cut down on turnover? And so what Gallup did is they actually interviewed all the people who had left the company recently, and they realized that all the salespeople had one thing in common, every single one of them. That when they knocked on the door or made a cold call, they got a knot in the pit of their stomach. And so what Gallup said to this company was, don't hire people who get knots in the pit of their stomach. And so the company went out to find those people, but they actually couldn't find anyone. So they called Gallup back and they said, hey, your research is flawed. You have to figure something out. So Gallup interviewed everyone that had been successful in their sales job, and they too had one thing in common. Every time they knocked on the door or made a cold call, they got a knot in the pit of their stomach. The difference was that they made a decision to not let fear of rejection or fear of losing the sale stop them. They knocked and made the ask anyways. Because the difference between a successful salesperson and an unsuccessful salesperson wasn't that one group had fear and one group didn't have fear. 
The difference was that one group acted in spite of fear. One group decided to do something. In his book, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield says that the amateur believes that he first must overcome his fear, then he can do his work. But the professional knows that fear can never be overcome. He knows that there isn't such a thing as a fearless warrior or a dread-free artist. So what do you need to do this week to get started? I would encourage you, honestly, talk about it with someone on your way home today. What do you need to do this week to get started? You don't think the marriage could get better. Just treat her with kindness this week, even during the difficult times. You don't think you can bear the weight of your life while sober. Just go without pills today. You don't think you can finish the house projects. Just buy the supplies. You don't think you can ever bring your friends to church. Just invite them over for dinner. You don't think you can grow in your faith after years of feeling far from God. Just pray once. Just do something. The Living Bible paraphrases Matthew 6, 4, and it says, live one day at a time. One day. Just do something. Because here's what will happen. Six months from now or a year from now, you will say that your marriage is better, you have better control of your finances, and you have more fulfilling relationships. And it will come back to a moment you decided not to let fear control you, and you just did something. You took that step. For some of you, that step is baptism, but you're afraid because you still have doubts. You're afraid because you still have that one sin in your life that never seems to go away. And the adversary keeps asking you, what if? What if? But here's the good news. You don't have to have all the answers to trust God. You don't have to be perfect to know that you are forgiven. You don't have to know the whole Bible to know that God loves you. Just do something. Some of you need to take that step to start with baptism. Start with putting your faith in him. Next week, we're actually going to celebrate as two people are taking that step. And if you're looking for a place to start when it comes to Jesus, that's a great first step to do something. If you're in that place, don't let fear stop you from getting up here. Don't let fear stop you from being in front of other people who want to cheer you on. Those people who want to be in your corner so you know you're not alone. If you're there, check off on baptism on your connection card or come find me after service. But the idea is this, just do something. In Ezra's time, they wanted to build a whole temple, and it took them decades. So what they did was they started with an altar, just something, something to get them started. The last verse we're going to look at today is in Ezra 3.2, and this is what it says. Then arose Jesua, the son of Jezadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. You don't need to read that later. That's complicated. But what they did is they built, and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the law of Moses, whenever you read that in the Old Testament, it's a reference to the Bible that they had at the time. They didn't have the entire Bible yet. They didn't have all the Old Testament. They didn't have any of the New Testament. They just had the first five books, and they call that the law of Moses. But what we see here is that the third key to overcoming fear is to trust the Bible, Some of you hear that and you think that sounds so constraining. Or if you're being really honest, you would say that you think that's a cop-out answer from me. Because you have real struggles and real fears and real doubts and real questions, and you think that the Bible is a bunch of rules that just don't make sense. But if you look at the Bible that way, then you don't really understand the purpose of the Bible. And that's okay. We want to help you better understand. The primary thing you need to understand in regards to the Bible is that God loves you. 1 John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The whole story of the Bible teaches that God loves you. That it's not contingent on how you treat others. 
It's not contingent on how lazy you were at work this week. It's not contingent on whether or not you beat your addiction. It's not contingent on anything. You can't earn God's love. What this also means is there's nothing that you can do to get rid of it. No matter how far you run away, God's love is still there, and it is free, and it's for you. And that kind of love drives out fear because you don't have to have, be afraid of losing it. There's no what if that negates God's love for you. There's no what if that changes the depths of that love. There's no what if that changes the love that he showed you when he sent his son to die on a cross so that you could experience freedom. If you weren't here last week with us, we talked about insecurity. And one of the things that we talked about is why you need to read your Bible, why you need to know God's word. Because it says that he made us in his image. Because he says, God says, that we are good. And scripture teaches us that we are more than conquerors, that we are worth God sending his son to die, to pay a debt that our sin creates. So when God says he wants to give you life to the fullest and he wants to give you freedom, freedom to live without the chatterbox, constantly trying to kill, steal, and destroy, the Bible shows us how to live that life. If we trust and obey what the Bible teaches, we will feel that freedom. Rick Warren says that the way you develop unhealthy fear is that you let something besides God become the most important thing in your life. Because when we let this happen, we set ourselves up for fear because we weren't meant to live that way. God is meant to be the most important part of our lives. If getting people's approval is the most important thing in your life, you will develop a fear of losing the approval of others. If money is the most important thing in your life, you will develop a fear of losing it all. If getting married is the most important thing in your life, you will develop a fear of remaining single or you will get married and develop a fear of divorce. If success is the most important thing in your life, you will develop a fear of failure. Putting God second or third or fourth will only lead to fear. So what are you afraid of? Where do your what ifs come from? Is there something competing with God for attention in your life? The Bible teaches us that we are to cast all of our cares on him. And the reason why we do that is because he cares for you. Let God be God. Some of you right now need to resign as the GM of your own universe and let him do what he is supposed to do. Because as long as you try to be God, you will be filled with fear and worry and the adversary will win. The chatterbox will win. Don't let fear dictate your direction in life. Let God set you free from that. So what if you fail? You get back up and you try again. What if it hurts? You aren't alone. What if you don't know where to start? Just do something. What if you feel lost? Well, God sent his son to seek and save you. What if you keep falling short? God's grace is free and it's unlimited. What if you no longer have to ask what if? You will experience freedom. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, um, God, that we don't have to ask what if, that you, you show us how to, how to break through that, how to get that voice, how to get that chatterbox to stop. God, I just pray this week that, that as we struggle with that and that every single person here, if they're being honest, would say they hear that voice in the back of their head constantly. God, that this week we can learn from the story in Ezra and we can learn from the Israelites and God, that we can be together as one, that we can just do something, that we can take a step, that we have the courage to do that and God, ultimately, that we trust what your word says in the Bible. 
God, I pray this week that, that we fight that chatterbox. God, whatever fear is dictating our life, whatever fear is defining the direction, God, ultimately this is a week where we can break free from that. We can see what freedom feels like and see how good you are. God, thank you for the ways that you love us and care for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.